Mark chapter 6. So in our world, I think you would agree with power and popularity most oftentimes create distance and separation. Yesterday, I, I spent my day flying uh, from Cincinnati. It was a funeral in the family. I had to fly back and forth quickly. And my connecting flight went through Atlanta, where I'm originally from. And if you've flown through Atlanta, you know Atlanta is a busy, busy airport. All sorts of people fly through, celebrities included. And I remember I was there a couple years ago, and this has maybe been, it's been a few years ago, but uh, Charles Barkley was sitting over in the corner, and he had a hat on, he had glasses, he had a newspaper, he was trying to do everything he could to disguise himself. And I was walking by, and I was looking and looking, it just came out loudly. Wow, that's Charles Barkley. Man, a crowd gathered around him. His eyes looked at me, so he wanted to, his eyes could have cut me if they could have. He was so upset. But whenever you see a celebrity or a person of power travel, traveling, you, you recognize the difficulty they have getting around. You notice the, the distance that they are, are really forced oftentimes to share with most people. Uh, you'll, find, you'll find them doing whatever they can, maybe disguising themselves as I saw Charles Barkley doing. Or if you're really popular and have power, you're going to receive probably special privileges to get around, have a team with you. Well, most often for practical purposes, uh, celebrities, popular people, those with power, typically have to distance themselves from most people. And this morning, we're going to come to the end of chapter 6 in Mark's gospel. Uh, we're nearly halfway through Mark's presentation of the person of Jesus. And in chapter 6, the power and the popularity of the person of Christ has been unmistakable, and it will be this morning. Last week, he fed 5,000. And this morning, he's going to walk upon the Sea of Galilee. The power of Jesus and the popularity of Jesus confront us again this morning. But unlike in our world today, with the Son of God, power and popularity do not create distance. Instead, his power and his popularity, his majesty are really expressed towards us through his nearness. Here's what I want us to see this morning if you're taking notes from our text. But the power and majesty of Jesus is brought near to us through His compassionate and healing work upon the cross. That the power and majesty of Jesus, it doesn't create distance. It's brought near to us through His compassionate and healing work upon the cross. Mark chapter 6. I'm going to begin here in verse 45. I'm going to read down to the end of the chapter in verse 56. Mark chapter 6, verse 45. This is the word of the Lord to us. Immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, we've seen that. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had taken a leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against him. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. 
When they had crossed over, they came to, to the land at Gennesareth and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he came in villages, cities, or countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that, he might touch that, that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Father, we, we've just read from the word of the Lord. And now, Lord, we want to speak to uh, you, the author of your word. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Grateful for your word, grateful for your people, grateful for the gospel. Thank you we get to celebrate it through baptism. Grateful that we'll get to unite in church membership following service. But Lord, as our service is held together, our whole life together is held by the power of your word. So Lord, this morning, settle our hearts. Help us to see you, Lord, as the one who supernaturally strolls across the surface of the sea and across the, uh, the shores of our life. Lord, help us to gaze upon your beauty, see your majesty, and to understand your nearness to us in the cross. And Lord, be with our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Now last week we, we walked through the feeding of the 5,000, which we said was probably more like 20,000 when you add the women and the kids in. And this was the, the climax of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. In one sense, it was his most impressive miracle, involving more people than any other up until this point. He had supernaturally created food to feed 5,000 people, including women and children, leaving Basketfuls left over, the text said. Everyone ate, we read. Everyone was satisfied. Everyone experienced satisfaction as only Jesus can provide. And it really was the, the climax of his miraculous power up until this point. But it was also the climax of his popularity as well. Jesus is two years into his ministry. And he's about a year into his Galilean ministry. He has called and empowered 12 disciples to, to preach and heal the sick. The crowds have seen and experienced Jesus' power over and over again. His popularity has grown. And following this miraculous feeding, his power and his popularity is elevated to even greater heights. The crowds love Jesus so much, we read in John chapter 6, recording of the same event, that they wanted to crown him king, the text says, following this miracle. If he can heal the sick, if he can raise the dead, if he can be our permanent source of food, man, let's get rid of Herod. And let's give him the throne, they concluded. They wanted to crown him king and seat him on Herod's throne. But as we know, this was neither the, uh, the time nor the, the manner in which Jesus would receive his kingdom. A throne does await Jesus. And a crown will be placed upon his head, but it won't, be, it won't happen without a cross. Jesus cares nothing of an earthly political kingdom. He cares nothing of the power, of that type of power and that type of popularity. Jesus has come to institute the kingdom of his Father, which, which, which entails a road paved with suffering and death. But before Jesus will take his seat on the, on the throne prepared by his heavenly Father... He has to attend to the business in front of him. And he has to attend to 
I think displaying the power of his name and the majesty of his person by way of this supernatural stroll across the Sea of Galilee. This is where we begin this morning with really my first kind of broad heading that we're going to look first at majesty upon the sea in verses 45 through 52. Majesty upon the sea. Now, in the midst of uh, of this wildly political scene with the people wanting to crown Jesus as king, verse 45 says he immediately made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowds. Well, he dismissed the crowds. Uh, Bethsaida is located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, just east of the Jordan River. And if you remember in Matthew's Gospel, we read of Jesus condemning Bethsaida along with Chorazin or Chorazin for its lack of repentance in light of Jesus' mighty work he does there. So Jesus sends the disciples ahead while he dismisses the crowd, sending them home, we read. Now, we must not miss the language in verse 45. Look at it. It says, Jesus made them. He sent them. In other words, he compelled them. He forced them to go. Spurgeon says their sailing was not merely under his sanction, but by his express command. They were in the right place, and yet they were met with a terrible storm. That's what we're going to see. Jesus sends them, compels them to head right into the center of a storm. The Son of God purposely sends his disciples here, sends the one, he's, the one whom he's called into trouble. Have you considered that Jesus sends those whom he calls oftentimes into trouble in the Bible? Have you considered that following the Son of God might mean his, he might sovereignly and graciously send you into trouble? Now we're conditioned by our culture and oftentimes by our preaching to hear that we're supposed to look for, seek out, and always pursue the easiest and safest path in life. However, Jesus might just purposely call you and send you down the difficult road. Biblically speaking, the safest and easiest place might not always be the obedient path in the Christian life. And why would Jesus do such a thing? Why would he make such commands upon us? Why would he send us into difficulty? Why would he send us into a storm? So that he might gracious, so that we might graciously grasp a greater understanding of his divine providence and his power. That's what the disciples are going to see. So that our faith and our dependence upon him might be solidified. He desires for us to discover the majesty of his person. That's why. And to follow Jesus in this path and to discern what path he's leading us down, we must do as he did. We must pray. As the disciples are sent off, the text says Jesus goes up on the mountain and he prays. We find three prayers recorded in the Gospel of Mark. One in chapter 1, verse 35, when Jesus' ministry begins. Here, in the middle of the Gospel, between the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. And then lastly, near the end, when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he goes to the cross. Chapter 14, verse 32 through 42. Whenever Jesus faced a critical moment, he prayed. That's what we see. And he did so most often by getting along. 
pray by himself in private. Often express tones of spiritual conflict and warfare. Prayer for Jesus was intense. It was specific and it was strategic. It portrayed a battle. Jesus sought his father in the heat of a spiritual battle raging around him. How do you think of the Christian life? Is a question I asked this week. Jimmy, how do you think of the Christian life? I know what I can say on paper. I know the right answer. But how do I approach the Christian life often? How do you approach the Christian life? Do you understand it as a battle? The shape of your prayer life will answer that question. The shape of my prayer life will answer my understanding of the Christian life. Jesus understood the spiritual battle swirling around him, so he prayed. He sought out his Father through intense prayer. He is here most assuredly praying for himself that he would fulfill his mission and glorify his Father. He's probably praying for the crowds he, he had just sent away who do not understand who he truly is. They seek him for permanent physical food, and they miss the point. And he is especially, I think, we know, praying for his disciples who are about to experience his power and majesty in a way they have not yet. Verse 46, it is now late in the evening. Actually, the fourth watch of the night between 3 and 6 a.m., the disciples are on the sea, and Jesus is alone enjoying communion with his Father in prayer. But notice verse 48. He saw that they were struggling on the sea, making headway. Painfully, for the wind was against them. Jesus' solace has never left them, as it does not us as well. And seeing his disciples struggling, Jesus moves into action. The text says he came to them walking on the sea. Jesus walks on the water here. Matthew tells us the boat was a long way off from the land which is an important detail. And geographically, we know that was probably a few miles. And it's an important detail because people try and explain the way this miracle in many ridiculous ways. It suggests that he walked beside the sea, or he walked in the shallow section of the sea. So it only seemed as though he walked on the water. But our text is straightforward. The biblical record is clear. Jesus walked on water. And the disciples' response proves this. The disciples were being tossed around by the sea, which doesn't happen in ankle-deep water. I don't know if you've ever been in ankle-deep water. You can handle that. Making headway painfully is another way of saying they were all over the place. So in the pitch black of night with the wind and the waves swelling, Jesus simply, supernaturally strolls along the surface of the water to tend to his disciples. He knows where they are. He's been watching over them, and he's been praying over them this whole time. He knows that they are going, what they are going through, and he supernaturally strolls along atop the water to attend to their distress. And notice it says, he meant to pass by them, which seems a bit strange, right? Maybe your translation reads, he was about to pass by them. He would, be, he, he would have passed by them, or he intended, which is more the literal phrase here, he intended to pass by them. And the differing ways of translates this demonstrates the interpretive issues that are here. What do we do with this phrase? 
And even more interesting is how his phrase, this phrase is particular to, Matthew's re, to Mark's retelling alone. It's not found in Matthew. Why would Jesus send them, wait until they're in trouble, pray over them, and now just want to pass by them? And why would Mark see fit to include this little detail? Some suggest this should be translated something like Jesus came alongside them. Or some emphasize the first-person perspective of Peter, who Mark most assuredly got this account from by understanding it, communicating how it seemed to Peter as though Jesus meant to pass by them. That's not a bad way of looking at it either. I think there's more going on here, especially given the fact that Mark omits the details which we find in Matthew, which make this story so popular, right? We read nothing here of Peter stepping out of the boat, walking on water, sinking in the water, having his faith challenged and being rescued by Jesus. Mark leaves this out. We should ask why. Mark is more interested in the one walking on the water than those in the boat. Mark particularly focuses on the identity of Jesus, the Son of God, all throughout his his retelling of the gospel. He focuses on Jesus' person, his power, and his majesty as he walks upon the waves. Because of this, I find the most compelling explanation behind this seemingly odd phrase, he meant to pass by to be rooted in the Old Testament understanding of a big word, theophany, which really just means the appearance and manifestation of God's glory. You know some of these. Exodus 33, 18 through 23, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God responded, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. First Kings 19.11, as God speaks to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and the earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Here's what I'm saying. Just as the Lord passed by Moses at Sinai and Elijah at Horeb in the Old Testament, Christ, the Son of God, the one possessing the radiance of the glory of the Father, passing by His disciples so that they might see His glory and majesty and believe in Him. God's divine presence, which was veiled and shadowed in the Old Testament, is revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ as He supernaturally scrolls upon the water here. We see that Jesus is the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves on the sea, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number, Job chapter 9. Jesus is here revealing the majesty of his person. God alone walks upon the water. Jesus is beyond question showing the disciples that that is who he is. Sadly, the disciples can't see this. They see someone walking on the sea and they conclude it's got to be a ghost, the text says. Maybe a a spirit on the water. And as we would expect, verse 50 says, they all saw him and were terrified. They cried out in terror. 
But immediately, Jesus speaks to them and says, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the the wind ceased. And the disciples' response, they were utterly astounded. Literally, they were stunned. They were left shocked, wondering what just took place. Again, we could say about Peter now stepping out of the boat, exercising faith by walking, etc., as Matthew does. That's not Mark's point. Mark fixes our gaze upon Jesus' statement, take heart, it is I, do not fear. In the original language, this is the ego I me, this is take heart, I am. These are the words God spoke to, to Moses in Exodus 3.14 at the burning bush. It is also the word Jesus uses in 8.58, John 8.58, declaring himself to be the great I am. Jesus not only walks where God alone walks, Jesus also bears alone the name God bears. The I am has passed by. And he's showing, he's declaring his divine glory and majesty upon the sea. The wind knows it. For the moment he steps into the boat, it ceases. There's no one like Jesus. There's no greater question for you to answer than the one we are answering as we go through this series in the book of Mark. Who is Jesus to you? There's no topic more important to consider. There's no subject more grand to study. And no person of more value to know than Jesus Christ. The identity of Jesus is Everything. He's a divine son. He possesses power over sickness. We've seen that. Over death in the demonic world. He's the one who raises the dead. He calms the sea. He walks upon the water. He is the son of God. The full expression of the creator. Who can take four loaves and two fish and feed thousands. Satisfy them. He's God. That's who he is. He's the one who strolls upon the surface of the storms of our life. That's who he is. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. That's who Jesus is. And as you would expect, the disciples are overwhelmed here, right? Uh, But sadly, they still don't get it. They still miss the person of Jesus as they will continue to do all the way up until the cross and the resurrection. Verse 52 says, look at verse 52, and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Jesus has just performed his most widespread miracle, widely revealing and witnessing to who he is in the feeding of the 5,000, really we said maybe 20,000. And they don't get it. The great and sovereign Lord has just passed by them, revealing his true person and glory by walking on the water, and they miss it. The astounded disciples did not realize what was going on, not because of intellectual dullness, but due to the hardness of their heart. Verse 52 says. 
One author points out, when people fail to understand the identity of Christ, it is not because they are unintelligent. It is because their hearts are recalcitrant. In other words, it's a heart issue as a knowledge issue. I've said this the last couple of weeks. I want to continue to bring it home for us by way of application. It's clear in Mark. It's clear in the Gospels that proximity to Jesus is not enough to create real faith in Jesus. Proximity to Jesus is no replacement for faith in Jesus. The disciples teach us this. They were with him. They witnessed his miracles and glory, and yet they missed him. Further step eternally forward, Judas warns us of this. Judas had been with Jesus for years. And he eternally missed Jesus. Judas would perish and spend eternity apart from Jesus, though he had a front row seat to Jesus his whole for years. The only hope for sinners is a heart transplant. For God to take out hearts of stone and that refuse to believe and to give us hearts of flesh that beat with faith in Christ. If you're not a believer this morning, I hope and I pray you think deeply about the Christian faith. I, one of my biggest pet peeves is when people talk about the Christian faith as though you have to shut your mind off to believe. You cannot enter the kingdom of God without your mind. You must think. Christianity is a rational, logical faith. The Christian faith is a thinking faith. But you also need to know you cannot think your way into the kingdom of God. You cannot think your way into the kingdom of God. Becoming a Christian demands belief in Christ. It requires submission to his majesty. It's a matter of the heart as much as it is the head. It requires you understanding and seeing who he is in his, in his glory and his majesty. And it, re- it requires you to step out in faith and believe in him and place trust in him because of who he is. And believers, there's a warning for us as well here. We too can be close to the action and yet possess meager faith and hard hearts. We can witness the unfolding story of who Jesus is. We can sit under preaching about him week after week. I can prepare sermons. We can study texts concerning him. We can sing songs centered upon him. And we can even tell others about him and still possess weak faith and a hard heart. Proximity is no no replacement faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. That's who's on the water. He is the divine Son. He is the, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Hebrews 1, 2-3 tells us. He possesses the power to supernaturally stroll across upon the seas. And yet, His power and majesty is never removed from us. It never creates distance from us. His divine nature never brings distance. He comes near to us. 
through his compassionate and healing touch. And that's what I want us to see in the rest of our text. So first we saw majesty upon the sea. Now we see compassion on the seashore. Verses 53 through 56. After walking upon the sea to deliver his weak-hearted disciples, the sovereign and majestic Son of God, now he steps on the seashore of Gennesaret to continue his work. In no doubt, a, a summary statement of the events taking place over a period of time, Mark summarizes our compassionate shepherd attending to the lost and hurting sheep in these final verses. Without hesitation, without discrimination, Jesus heals many. He extends his compassion by way of his healing touch. The majestic and divine son who walks upon the sea is the same son who heals the hurting. In 54, we see that as soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, the people immediately, Jesus immediately sends them away. Jesus immediately responds to the disciples. Now the people immediately recognize him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And notice the language here. And when he came in, when he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Again, note, where are the disciples at here? They were in the boat. They stepped off the shore. But they've completely faded into the background here. Reiterating again, I believe Mark's emphasis here on focusing on Jesus as the Son of God. He's the focus here. And here his compassion and his healing touch is elevated. Now this touching of the fringe of his garment should remind us of something, right? Should remind us of the story we previously read concerning the, the woman with the discharge of blood, right? Who touched him by faith and was instantly healed. The miraculous power of Jesus is expressed through his nearness, a touch. And as many as touched it were made well. That's the emphasis here. The miraculous, matchless power of Jesus, the power to walk upon the water, is no abstract idea. The identity of Jesus is just not some theological theory you need to think about. It has practical benefits for your life. It's not a vague theological concept. It doesn't result in Jesus' distance from you. The magnitude of His person and the glory of His power results in His nearness expressed towards us. By him coming and offering his healing touch to us. Same Jesus who strolls upon the seas. Demonstrates his divine nature. Is the same Jesus who enters the villages, the cities, the countrysides. Mark's thorough here, right? And as many as touched him are healed. His power never creates distance. His sovereign nature never results in separation. It brings nearness. It brings healing to all. What we see here is how his compassionate healing touch becomes the very expression of his divine power and majesty and action towards us. He, he expresses his power and majesty by way of his healing touch. In this narrative, Jesus' healing was amazing. It was indiscriminate. It was thorough. As many as touched him were made well. 
But this healing and this sickness, healing of sickness, it was also temporary. We, we know that. How do we know that? Because every one of these people who experienced healing from Jesus eventually got sick again and they died. We know that because they're not alive anymore. Right, let's be careful here. Does Jesus heal today? Amen. We pray in that direction. I pray in that direction. He has the power and the authority under his sovereign will to do as he pleases. And we seek him for that, as the Bible says. But Jesus is no more a source of permanent physical healing while on this earth as he was a source of permanent bread last week. This is not the point. No, his miracles, his feeding of the 5,000 and his healings were manifestations of his glory. They were, they are signs of the kingdom, as John tells us. They were meant to manifest and to, to point to another kingdom. And they were meant to point to the true king. We find the embodiment of the kingdom of God in the Son of God. Jesus came to preach about. He came to demonstrate for us. And ultimately, he came to institute. The kingdom of God, which is not of this world. So we understand why when the people wanted to make him king, he would have no part of it. He cared nothing of an earthly political kingdom. His miracles, his power, his compassion, and his healings point to the kingdom of God. And they demonstrate him as the, the true king. And the beautiful unique reality of the kingdom of God is that the king himself would lay down his life to institute his kingdom. Jesus instituted his kingdom by his death upon the cross. Remember Jesus' words from Mark chapter 115. We called it our theme verse. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the, the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. The kingdom and the gospel are tied together. God provided our true bread through the sending of his son. We saw that last week. And Jesus secured our true healing by his death upon the cross. Just as there is a, a deeper hunger which only Jesus can satisfy, there is a, a deeper healing which only Jesus can offer. Peter says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Amen. All the power and the majesty of Jesus is brought near to us. It was death upon the cross for our sins, for your sins, for my sins, where he offers us spiritual healing True, lasting spiritual healing from our condemnation of sin. And though the resurrection, and through the resurrection, we discover the ultimate act of power. Where death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. Jesus rose from the grave forever, ushering in the kingdom of God. So, brothers and sisters, you're hungry. Because I'm hungry. <laughs> We're hungry. We need bread. And Jesus is the only one who ultimately will satisfy you. And we also need healing. 
I need spiritual cleansing. You need spiritual cleansing. We're sinners. And we stand condemned in our sin apart from Christ. And the only, the only way through the work of Christ to receive that healing is through what he did upon the cross. The healing we ultimately need comes solely through his work upon the cross. Jesus is the bread of life. Amen. But Jesus is our great compassionate physician as well. He's the son of God. He's the majestic one. He's the one with all power. He's the one who his glory passes by. He's the one who supernaturally strolls upon the surface of the seas. And he's the one who can stroll upon the storms of your life. But still, even yet, and so, how else can I say it? In all of that, He's also the one who comes near to you. His power, his majesty, his popularity, his authority, his dominion, his sovereignty does not force him to stand off at a distance from us. He comes near to us through the cross of Christ. He comes near to us through his compassionate and healing work upon the cross. How do we respond? We worship. We worship him for who he is. We don't make the mistake to gaze and look upon him and see who he is and turn around unmoved. We see him in his majesty. We see him in his glory. We see him for what he's done for us on the cross. And we lay our lives at his feet and say, he's our king. We love you. We want to serve you. Our response, church, is to worship him. We worship Jesus for who he is. And because of what of who he is, we found salvation, we find satisfaction, we find eternal life, we find everything in what he has done for us on the cross. Because the power and majesty of Jesus is brought near to us through his compassion and healing work upon the cross. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for your word with its clarity that it speaks to us. We thank you for its authority. We thank you for its power. We thank you for its validity. We thank you, Lord, that we come to the scriptures. We see the very glory of the Son of God. Lord, help us to see your Son today, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to see him in his majesty and his glory. Help us to see him as he is, your divine son, the one who is the exact imprint of your nature and who upholds the, word, the world by the word of his power. Help us to see him as the one who supernaturally strolls upon the seas. But Lord, if we miss the fact that somehow that that, that, that leaves us at some 
uncrossable or some distance we cannot get to you through. We've missed the gospel. Because that is the case. Because of our sin, we have been separated from you. And we do stand separated and far off from your holiness and your majesty. But you have sent your son. The one who would die. The one who would come near to us with a compassionate touch of healing upon the cross. So Lord, I pray this morning that if anyone's here who doesn't know you, they wouldn't walk in here and witness the gospel and baptism. They wouldn't sing the gospel with other brothers and sisters. They wouldn't hear the gospel preached to you and turn around and walk away and say, not for me. Lord, draw hearts today. If you don't know Christ, you have questions. When the service is over, let's chat. Draw them to you, Lord. Let's open up the scriptures and ask, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Lord, as, as the church, we know, we confess. We oftentimes confuse that our proximity to you through the life that we live as the church, the studying of your word, the preaching, the, the fellowship with the saints, that, Lord, the rhythms of religion, we oftentimes confuse those with true deep abiding faith in you. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, we don't just want to see you. We want to know you. We want to experience you in our life. So Lord, help us this morning as the church to respond rightly in obedience. Look upon you, gaze upon you, and respond the only rightful way by laying our lives before you. Lord, thank you for this day. It's a joy to baptize a brother. It's a joy to open your word it's a joy to close knowing that we have hope in the resurrected Christ. In his name we pray.